Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, a couple of announcements before I get into uh, God's word together with you today. First, um, we had uh, a whole bunch of fun on Thursday night here at our campus with our seniors and karaoke night. And I really hope there's no pictures. Uh, but just want to just give a huge big thanks to Chuck and Janelle and Polly and the Dorseys for helping to make that uh, possible, fun, and also, yeah, wonderful time together. Uh, I was not there because, as you well know, I can't pick up a microphone except to talk. So that's a mercy gift I give to you. Um, and the second thing, this, the second thing I will say, uh, and this is going to sound a little bit cryptic, but if uh, Ron Howell, if you're here, can I speak to you after class, please? Okay? You're not in trouble. All right. Hey, uh, if you've got a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to Jonah chapter 4? Jonah 4. Uh, this Sunday, today, we get to wrap up our six-week series in the book of Jonah. Six weeks watching the hero of this story, God, time and again demonstrate that his grace is for everyone. Not just for the elites, not just for the privileged, not just for those who grew up in a nice and tidy home. Amen. God's grace is for everyone. It's to anyone and everyone who would receive it. That's not been Jonah's opinion, though. When God first told him to go to Nineveh, he didn't like it. And what we're going to do today is we're going to learn a little bit more about why he didn't want to go to that great and evil city. But God's grace is for the Ninevites, and it was for the sailors. And it also, most especially, is for this guy, Jonah. The one guy in the book, the hardest of all the hearts, the one who needs God's grace the most. Let me show you just how bad he needs the grace of God. Last week, chapter 3, verse 10, we read these words. When God saw what they, that's the city of Nineveh, did, how they turned away from their evil, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord had come to this great and wicked city, the greatest and the wickedest of all the cities that had ever existed to this point in all of human history. But the word of God reaches this city and into the hearts of the people they begin to crumble. Repentance floods into the city. Revival floods into the city. Forgiveness and life pour into the city. Imagine that. Imagine that just for a second. You picture the hardest heart you know. The worst, most distant sinner that you know, the one who would never be caught dead in a church who only uses the name of the Lord in the wrong ways. Imagine that heart. And I'll imagine that person for me. And we'll all imagine those people for all of us. And imagine all of them sitting in this room all at the same time, and then all of them in a moment get saved. Can you imagine that? And may it be so. Wouldn't that be wonderful to see? Wouldn't that be incredible? How would your heart respond to that? Well, look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Wait, what? Now that sounds awful. But it actually gets worse. Because buried underneath the English in the phrase that I've highlighted actually exposes a Hebrew term 
that talks to Jonah's accusing of God. It didn't just displease me exceedingly. God, what you have done is wrong. Jonah accuses God of wickedness. You saved this city? God, you shouldn't have done that. And the result is that, God, that Jonah is furious with God. And now we get the real reason why Jonah never wanted to go to Nineveh in the first place. Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord. Now, in your print Bibles, not on the screen, but in your print Bibles, that's the small caps. And he said, oh, Lord, that's small caps again. Jonah is using the intimate divine name of God that God has given to his special people, Israel. He's talking personally to God now. And he says, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, I never wanted to go to this city because it was my worst nightmare that you were going to save these monsters. These are horrible human beings and they deserve your judgment and wrath and I knew you were going to be gracious and I knew you were going to be merciful and I knew you weren't going to be angry but you were going to forgive and you were going to love them. I knew you'd do this. And by the way, Jonah's throwing up in God's face what God has said to the people of Israel. It's a key passage in the Old Testament. It's found in Exodus chapter 34. And Exodus chapter 34 is immediately after the incident of the golden calf at Mount Sinai, where the people of God gather, having been rescued out of Egypt, they then make a golden calf and bow down to the golden calf. Despite all that the Lord has done, despite all the miracles, despite all of the, 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 the incredible things that Israel has seen, they disobey greatly. But then in Exodus 34, God speaks directly to Moses and says, I am a merciful God. I'm a gracious God. I'm a forgiving God. Abounding in steadfast love. Jonah throws that in God's face. In short... What Jonah's mad about. The grace and forgiveness you gave to us, you're given to them also. The monsters of Nineveh. But that doesn't surprise us. Because over and over and over and over again in the book of Jonah, we have seen God's grace is not just for the us, it's for all everybody. Jonah knows who God is, he knows who the Lord is, he gets this, but he hates it exceedingly. He even declares God to be acting unrighteously. God, you have done wrong. And now it's so bad. It's so bad. In Jonah's eyes, he didn't even want to live anymore. Look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. If this is who you are, and this is what you do, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm out. The last chapter in the book of Jonah opens to us two windows into two very, very different hearts. And we just opened the first, and it's ugly. This is the window into the heart of man. And let me just say this. Let me just say this with all gentleness and love 
and as kindly as possible. This isn't just the heart of one man. This is the heart of every single one of us. The chapter in Jonah, this last one, is probably the most confusing chapter of the four. It's definitely the least understood. It's definitely the one that's least familiar. But here's the truth. This chapter, this fourth one, is the whole point of the book. It's going to open to us a window into two hearts. We're going to see, if you're willing to see it, that we're all like this guy Jonah. But it's also going to open up to us a second window into the beautiful, wonderful, kind, and loving heart of God. And oh, church, what a heart that is. So buckle up. Jonah 4. Let's pray. Father, for please for eyes to see and for ears to hear. For eyes to open up and to look and to see this guy in this page and how much he is like me. Like a mirror, God, would it shine into my heart. That I would see, Lord, who I really am. Not content with where I'm at. Not good with coasting into a finish line. Not okay with not looking at my life. God, I pray that you would open my heart to see it. And then, God, at the same time, as you would open eyes and ears, mine included, that there would be a response to you. And your incredible heart. How wonderful, God, to see ourselves more clearly. How wonderful even more to see you more clearly. And let worship rise between. God, I pray that the end result is, oh, I'm not actually that great. Oh, I actually haven't arrived. And God, oh, how I need the grace of God today. Please, Lord, Please break hearts and heal that your people love you even more. Be holy in our eyes, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now I've said this several times. Uh, if you start to view the, the, the central character, the protagonist of this book, the hero of this book as Jonah well, then you're going to be really disappointed like you just were. Because the hero of the book is not Jonah. It's not even close. It's God himself. And that's really handy when I start remembering that that's true for every single story in the book of the Bible. Every single book, every single chapter, every single verse, the hero is God. And so that helps me when I start to read stories of Abraham. And oh, how mighty is his faith, but yet oh, how awful is his evil. We step back and say, but he's not the hero of that story. And Jonah is definitely not the hero of this story. What the hero of this actual story has done is he has done amazing things over and over and over again. And God himself has shown to us that his amazing grace is for every single one of us, even those least likely to receive it. God's just different. 
But that isn't sitting well with the title character. He hates that God has spared Nineveh. He hates that God has acted according to God's character towards people who aren't Israelites. He even hates living in the world where God does this kind of stuff. Verse 3, how angry do you have to be to say something like, Oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live because of all this you have done. Well, the Lord in mercy comes to him in verse 4 and says this, Do you do well? To be angry. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? That's Jonah's hearts on display. And that's point number one if you're taking notes today. It's this, beware the heart of man. Now, not to mess you up, but I've got a sub-point under this one right away. I want you to see the heart of man. Our hearts, if left to ourselves, are self-righteous hearts. It's a self-righteous heart. We can see the self-righteousness right on display here in Jonah right now. God has done something that he hates... And therefore, God is not good, and therefore, I quit. According to Jonah, Jonah has the correct way of understanding the world. According to Jonah, Jonah has the correct approach to dealing with people who are this evil. Jonah understands that Nineveh needs to be destroyed, but God doesn't do that. God does something he hates. So therefore, God is not good, therefore, I quit. That's self-righteousness. You know what God should be doing, and he's not doing it. Why isn't he doing it? Well, here we come up with three reasons. Well, it could just be that God doesn't actually know what's going on right now. And so I have to inform him because he's bumbling along in ignorance. God, don't you know what you're doing to me? God, don't you know how this is going to play out? God, don't you understand? God, you're bumbling along in ignorance. That's one option. The other option could be, well, it's maybe because God doesn't have any power to stop it. In which case, God, you're bubbling along in weakness. You have no power. You can't do anything. Or the third, which is what Jonah goes with. He goes with the third. God doesn't actually know what's right to do. And so he's bumbling along. And as Jonah accuses him, in evil. Three reasons. God's ignorant. God's weak. Or God, you don't know what you're doing. You're doing wrong. Now just pause for a second, pop the sandals on, live in the text, and look at the pains in your own heart, if I can ask you. Look what's pressing down on you right now, and look specifically at something that you desperately want, and you're not getting. Something that you have asked for, and it's not happening, and you don't get it. Because God, you should be doing this. Just like Jonah, Jonah wants something, but he doesn't get it. Now granted, you don't want a city destroyed, but you want something else, and you don't have it. Maybe it's a health issue that's not fixed. What's going on, God? A financial issue. I'm doing my, what's going on, God? A relational issue, a lack of relational issue, a family issue, a lack of family issue, a thing that you desperately want. What's going on, God? A status or a position. What's going on, God? Now here's where self-righteousness will lead. Self-righteousness will lead you to, God, you don't know what you're doing. God, you must be weak. God, you're not good. God, you're holding out on me. There is good there but you're not letting me have it. You're holding out on me. Those are ancient lies from the very beginning of time. 
whispered from the mouth of a servant. God's not good. God's holding out on you. Lies we tell ourselves, lies we hold into our hearts. That's the self-righteous heart. Beware the heart of man. The self-righteous heart will follow the Lord as long as the Lord does what I think is right. And when God doesn't do that, you know what? I'm out. I'm maybe not fully out, but you know what? I'm done following you like I used to follow you. I'm done with the passion I used to have. I'm done caring like I used to care. Although he lived a couple thousand years before Jonah was born, Jonah would have loved, or after Jonah was born, Jonah would have loved the English philosopher John Locke. Locke taught the idea of a social contract between citizens and the king. So the king is legitimate as long as the citizens consent to him leading. In other words, you can be king, king, just as long as you act like a king, and as soon as you don't act like a king, I can withdraw my consent for you to be king, and then king, you ain't going to be a king anymore. Jonah would have loved that, because that's how he's treating God. You can be God of my life as long as you act in ways that I think you should act. And when you don't do that, I'm out. I know better. That's the self-righteous heart. Now look where the self-righteous heart leads you. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what became the city. How interesting, isn't it? How interesting. How interesting his broken heart, his hard-heartedness is removing him. His rejection of God is distancing him from where the Lord is actually working. Jonah is self-selecting to get up and to leave the room when the revival starts. God is unzipping the city, they're repenting, and Jonah decides, you know what, I'm going to walk away. And I'm going to stand up here under my cardboard box on the hill, on the hillside, and just hope and hope and hope that instead of what I think is going to happen, that God's actually going to drop a nuke on the city. Because that's what they deserve. You see, the self-righteous heart misses what God has done. And it misses what God's doing. The self-righteous heart forfeits any opportunity to witness the power of God because the self-righteous heart thinks that God's not acting right. What are you doing saving those Ninevites? What are you doing delaying and giving me what I need or what I think I need? What are you doing and not helping me right away, all the way? What are you doing and not listening to me? What are you doing and not acting the way I think you should act and not fixing the problem and not stopping what's happening? What are you doing saving those kinds of people? Those kinds of people. The next thing you know, we're going to have somebody up front preaching in jeans. <laughs> you see the self-righteous heart? You see the self-righteous heart misses what God's doing. Not even looking at it. Focusing only on the externals. Church, beware the heart of man. It's self-righteous. Now, unfortunately, there's more to it. And the hero of the story, God himself, pursues Jonah and wants to show his rebellious little prophet what's going on inside his heart, just a little more. So he chases Jonah to the hillside, which we're not surprised by because God has been pursuing his prophet the entire book because that's how God loves. He pursues. And this time, God's going to use some props to communicate some truths to him. 
Look at verse 5. Now, or verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. There's that word appointed again, right? Remember the last time we saw that word appointed? It was back in chapter 1 when God appointed the fish. God is moving and using the natural elements to advance his lessons. God's using props again to teach Jonah. Okay, so Jonah's up there sitting under his cardboard box shed in verse 5. Remember, this is the Middle Eastern sun, so it's blisteringly hot. Always was, always has been. Jonah's looking for some relief, and God provides it for him in the form of a fast-growing plant. Fast enough to grow up over Jonah in a night, a shelter from the storm. And this causes Jonah's heart to go in the opposite intense direction. In verse 1, he's exceedingly upset because God has saved the Ninevites. And here in verse 6, he's exceedingly, that's the same word, happy because of a plant. Now verse 7. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed, same word, a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Verse 8 continues with Jonah's response, and he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. The wording is almost exactly the same as earlier. My life is so difficult, I wish I could die. What's happening? God's using props to expose more of Jonah's heart. He's exposing the heart of man. First he showed him, you didn't like what I did. You were so self-righteous that you believed that I behaved in a way that is wrong, that is unjust. Unjust against your view of right and wrong, but I was acting justly. You, in fact, Jonah, think it's better to die than to live in a world that I control. You're telling me that you don't think that I know what I'm doing. You're telling me that I'm not strong. You're telling me that I'm not good. God, you're holding out on me. And now here in verse 7 and 8, with God's object lesson, God's exposing the heart to see how selfish Jonah really is. Jonah, you're mad at me because you're not getting what you want. Listen, for you. You don't even care about anything else that's going on. A plant, a worm, a wind. Object lesson. Jonah, don't you see that within the heart of man there is a self-righteous heart, but there also is secondly this, a selfish heart. God, you took away my delights. God, you took away my pleasures. God, you took away my identity. God, you've taken away my world. Therefore, God is not good. Therefore, I quit. And that selfish heart takes him to the same place that his self-righteous heart took him. God said to him in verse 9, do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. You took it away, and now my life loses its meaning. Yes, I do well to be angry. Yes, I do well to be angry. It's 100% fine that I'm angry with you. I'm furious with you because you took away my plant. And God did take it away. Make no mistake, loved ones, God took it away. That's undeniable. God appointed the worm. God appointed the wind. 
Never mind that God also appointed the plant in the first place. God put it there and God took it away. Now on the one hand, this interaction is so ridiculous that we just want to reach into the pages of Scripture, don't we? And we want to grab this guy and we want to put him over our knee and we want to give him a real spanking. Because Jonah, really? You're going to freak out over a plant? You're going to accuse God of acting unjustly and not being good? You're going to attack the character of God and you're going to stand in defiance against the holy God over a stupid plant. And on the one hand, we want to do this because it's so ridiculous. I mean, think about it. There's a revival churning in the city down the hill. 120,000 lies were being told, all of them surrendering to the Lord. And you're up on a hillside freaking, up, freaking out over a plant. I'm sorry, but on one hand, that sounds ridiculous. But you're muted in your laughter because you know, oh, this is Jonah. It applies to me too. Be gentle, pastor. And it does. It applies to me. It applies to us. Because on the other hand, this sounds a lot like me. This sounds a lot like my selfish heart. What I hope you're seeing right now in the book of Jonah is that God is demonstrating he is clearly in control of everything, even the natural elements. This is God's world. He made it, and he's sustaining it. And so all the fish respond to him, all the plants respond to him, all the worms respond to him, even the wind and the waves all respond to what he wants them to do. God made this world. God controls this world and everything in it. And guess what? He does it perfectly. God's a master at this. God is really, really, really good at making worlds. But we think we are too. We think we're really good at making worlds with only one person who's inhabiting it, ourselves. We're really good at making worlds where we think we know what's best and where everything and everyone revolves around us. And so in our perfect world, we get what we want all the time. We're right all the time. And no, ever, no evil ever befalls us all the time. Like when I'm driving the car, in Craig's world, the traffic parts like the Red Sea. The closest parking spot next to the Costco doors is always reserved for me. My wife, whenever I interact with her, always thinks that I'm a genius with everything I say. My kids bow down before me when I walk into the room. Everything that I want is on sale. Everyone, and I mean everyone, always notices my in incredible humility. The cars are always new, my team always wins, my waistline never changes. I'm always right in my world. I always deserve to get what I want in my world. See, like God, we build worlds also, but listen, let me pull the band-aid off. Your world is never about anybody else but yourself. Let me pull another band-aid off. Your world doesn't have God at its center. And so it's kind of a nightmare. One more band-aid. Your world isn't real. <laughs> you don't live in your world. 
wear the heart of man. It's selfish. It'll place you on a hillside in misery over a plant that you lost. Ridiculous that Jonah should be so angry over a plant, right? But what if it's not a plant, church? What if the worm and the wind took away something different? Something maybe not so ridiculous. What if the worm took away something that other people have? God, I just don't want to be alone. God, I just want to find that someone. God, I just want to add to our family. God, I just didn't want to lose him. I didn't want to see her go. God, I just want to be able to pay for the bills. God, I just want to not have to face that sickness. I don't care about a plant. Like, I'm not doing that to you, God. But if I'm honest, I am kind of struggling. I am kind of frustrated. I am kind of mad. Because the pathway that you have put in front of me is not a pathway that other people have to walk. Why do I have to walk it? Why do I have to walk this road? Stupid Jonah didn't have to walk this road. I wish I had to deal with a plant that went away. I've been trying, God. I've been trying. Why did you send the wind and the worm for me and my thing? And you know, maybe I'm willing to even concede that my heart is a little bit selfish in this. I'm wanting things for me. But I can't have them. And I'm mad at God. God, why can't I have that too? Others have it. Why can't I have it? The wind and the worm has taken a lot from me, Lord. And I'm mad at you. I hide it. But I'm kind of mad. As long as he gives me what I want, I will follow him. If he takes something from me, I'm done. Let me just pause. Pastor, make no mistakes, church. This life is difficult. This life is downright excruciating at times. You don't know my life. You don't know what I'm walking through right now. I got stuff in my life too, like you. I had to sit in this place all week of listening and seeing my own heart in its anger against God. It's very tempting, isn't it, to get angry? We can veil it, we can hide it, but it's there. But then the heart steps back, and the point of the book of Jonah leads us into the great and awesome grace of our God that tells us what if, what if God has a different plan? What if this life is so painful? What if this life is so agonizing? Because you don't belong in this life. What if this is not your home? 
What if this is not the place that you're belonging for all of eternity? And what if God is trying to accomplish something in your life that would lead to his great glory and that life after life be saved in him? What if God's refining you to make you more into the image of son and he will do anything and everything to get you to that place? Because, again, you're not made for this world. What if God's playing the long game, church? God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well. Angry enough to, be, to die. Now verse 10. God gets the last word, by the way, because God's the hero of the book. Verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle? Beware the heart of man. But this is a story of two hearts. We just heard from the second. Here's the second. I want you to behold the enormous, awesome heart of a loving God. You see, there's two hearts in this story. The first is on display. It's Jonah on display in all of its brokenness. But I also want you to see God's incredible heart on display. You pity the plant, says God. I pity the city of Nineveh. You pity a plant that didn't exist yesterday and is gone today. I'll pity 120,000 lives who, apart from me, were entering into an eternity of wrath and judgment. I'm playing the long game. By the way, by the way, do you know what kind of plant is not visible in one day and then grows tall enough to cover a man in the next? That plant is a weed. You think about it. Jonah cares more about the weeds than he does about the people. I mean, Jonah, you don't even care about cows that last longer than weeds. That's his point of saying that. Here's a heart, a window into the heart of God. It's selfless. And when we see this, it calls us to respond as we're already doing, to ask the question, what are the things in my life that I'm pitying, the things in my life where I have way more concern for, the things that are gone in a moment that don't matter one nanosecond into eternity? These are God's words. You pity the plants. Shouldn't I pity Nineveh? You care so much about blank. Shouldn't I care for the lives of the people around you? Where we would have compassion for weeds things that last only for a moment, where we would have concern, exaggerated concern over temporal things. You fill in the blanks. I'm freaking out about blank. Doesn't anybody realize how important blank is? We got to do something about blank. You fill in your own blank. You know what it is. My weeds are precious to me. They're so valuable. And listen, it's not that God doesn't care about those things in our lives. Some of those things he cares a great deal about in our lives. But God is playing a long game. God is playing a bigger score. He's playing for the game of eternity. And right now, as much as he is concerned about our daily struggles, praise God, praise God that he cares more about our eternal souls. Because his is a heart that pitied us. And if you don't like that word pity, well, you can substitute it for what it means, which is an extreme compassion for somebody who's hurting. God's heart, caring for us, a hurting heart, calling us to himself. It calls us to respond. It also calls us to remember. My God cares more about the souls around me. I have compassion on the temporal. He has great desires for the eternal. My grace, says God, is for everyone. It's for everyone. Even those least likely to receive it. People like me. People like you. He cared so much he sent his messenger, Jonah, to save a city that he loved. 
And of course, you and I have the fullest revelation of the New Testament. And we can understand that God didn't just care for Nineveh, little Nineveh, 120,000. God cared for the whole world. God so loved the whole world in all of its brokenness, just like he loved Nineveh. And he sent his messenger, his son, Jesus Christ, not just with a message, but with a message of his life, the living word. Uh, and Jesus, who looked upon the crowd with compassion and love and pity and gave his life for us. Jesus, who dies upon the cross for us, that we might have freedom and life and hope in him. The heart of our God on display. And the book of Jonah reminds us that God's grace is for each and every single one of us. And God came for us and he died for us that we might have life. The heart of God so rich in compassion, so rich in mercy, so rich in love for the heart that is broken. Chief in line, me. You see, understand this, that for every single sailor in this room who's never heard the gospel before, but now believes his grace is for you, for every single Ninevite in this room who has turned and repented from their former waves and now believes, well, his grace is for you. And for every single Jonah in this room, struggling with self-righteousness and selfishness, he came for saving you. His grace is for you also. God's grace is for everyone. To behold the heart of God is to understand and to remember that no one is beyond the reach of his incredible grace. No one at all. That's the book of Jonah. And that's the truth of the entire Bible. No one is beyond his grace. If you would just receive it, he will give it. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God so that no one may boast. All boasting is left to Jesus. We boast in a God who loves us so incredibly much. Church, we get to close our time in a very physical celebration of the glory of a Savior who gave his life for us. We turn now to celebrate the Lord Jesus and what he's done, specifically at the cross and his sacrifice for sins for us to be here today. And most importantly, for our relationship with him to carry on into eternity beyond this painful world. Something greater than Jonah has arrived. And he sacrificed his life for our sins. I'm going to invite the uh, deacons to go and get ready with the elements. And as I transition now into the Lord's Supper, I want to remind you, church, that the, God's word teaches us clearly what the Lord's Supper is. It is uh, and what it isn't. There's nothing magical or mystical that's about to happen here. This is a celebration, a supper as a family of God. It is the Lord himself who instituted this the night of his betrayal. He called us as a church, as his people, to remember his work, to look back and to remember the sacrifice of sins because of the cross of Jesus Christ. He also called us to look within our hearts to see what's going on inside of our lives and inside of our hearts and also with great anticipation to look ahead with the day that is soon coming when he will return. Uh, I would like to remind you all, if you don't know this, maybe here for the first time, this celebration is for those of you who are here today and you're in Jesus Christ. Quite literally here at Bannockburn, this is the only thing we're going to ask you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to not be a part of. The scriptures tell us that this is a family meal for those who have, in a moment in time, placed their faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins. And instead, what I would encourage you to is the elements are passed, they're double cupped, you just observe them and observe the faith around you.
But for those of us in Christ, as the elements are passed, and they will be passed soon, ushers, thank you for your patience, uh, or deacons, thank you for your patience, uh, I would encourage all of us to examine our hearts, maybe even having a moment with the Lord to talk to him. Is there something that needs to be repented of? Is there a conversation that needs to have, have happened? And once all the elements are distributed, uh, then we will take the Lord's Supper together. So I'll have the worship team come up as we're doing that, and we can play over you as that's happening. But let me lead us in prayer. God, we pray that this time...